Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. After a decade away, the time is now. Join us in the campaign for the return of FBI criminal profiler Frank Black and Millennium. Welcome to the Back to Frank Black Millennium group sessions, my friends. This is who we are. Welcome to another special panel discussion of the Millennium Group Sessions podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the season two episode Luminary, which will end Luminary Week on Back to Frank Black. I am the host, Troy Foreman, and the co-host of this wonderful show is Mr. James McLean. That's Jimothy to you. I'm sorry. So you're Jimothy, Jimothy and I'm Troisy now, right? Troisy, yes. Troisy, Troisy Foreman. I can normally go with anything you normally say, but uh, Troisy, I can't, I can't, I can't flow. Why is it? Is it? Is it? You can't flow with that. I can't flow with that, man. <laughs> you can't flow with it. Like the river in Luminary, I can't flow with that, man. You can flow with the river though. You you, you just got to sit in it. So you just got to sit there and just let Troisy sort of. Uh, yeah. No. no. Is, is it just something that you could work on the corners? Is that just just <laughs> going to work there, Troisy? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'm a wanker. We Sorry, have a Captain. great panel for us on the show today. James, you want to talk about our special guests? Yes, we've got three special. Well, we've got four special guests actually. Beg your mm. pardon. We've got four. We had a uh, had a very late one who will be taking part in our first. So we're going to have one part with uh, three three special guests. Uh, as I say, we've got one there that was just very late coming in. In fact, what it was about two minutes before we started recording listen out for that then we have a second part where we have a second well we have three again but with a, a different third person and then there's then we finish off with uh with us and two i'm leaving out the names because they're going to be done in my wonderful intro in a second yeah and i think you'll get a lot out of that all i can say is please stay with us you will not be disappointed it's a good show uh it's very interesting the people involved with this we were not are not are not boring snorting fan geeky nerd people and they knew their they knew their luminary episode. They know their stuff, and they are they are funny, straightforward guys and girls. So, I think you're going to love them all. So, without further ado, here is our panel discussion of the luminary episode. thought it would end like this. To tell the truth, I never thought it would end at all. In one of my more lucid moments, I described Chris Carter as Adam, the first man of our millennium fandom, the creator. Well, to coin a term from the show, if Chris is the alpha, then surely our next trio, or quartet as it may be, of guests are the Omega. They are the end of the line, 
From the creator, the work finally reaches the consumer, the fan. Be they wonderfully handsome and classy chaps like myself, or <laughs> aging in slightly non-British ex-colonial tax dodgers like Troy. We are the Omega. We are as important as the Alpha. So this podcast pays homage to the fans with our exclusive fan panel for possibly one of the most analysed and enjoyed episodes of Millennium, Luminary. If you're wondering what the face of the voice of our next guest looks like, watch his short yet smart video reviews of the ba- on the Back to Frank Black blog, and you'll be just as clueless. Welcome the Maskhead Dirt. We're delighted William Johnson from the insightful and ever so slightly geek pop culture blog uh, secureimmaturity.com can join us. And finally, we have a big fan of Millennium, uh, Lance Henriksen. All big Millennium fans, all very welcome. <laughs> welcome uh, to the panel, guys. Hey, thank you. <laughs> I think what so I you're do... not just the star, you're also a fan of the show, huh? I guess that's helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah. I, I, guess what I... I gotta say, it's, it's pretty surreal for me right now, because I just got done playing like 110 hours of Mass Effect, in which Lance was talking to me a lot, in which I could not talk back, but now... He's talking back to me. It's very strange. Having a very surreal moment. <laughs> so what I do is I read a brief summary of the episode, and then I'll get each one of yours uh, first impression when you watch the episode, if that's cool. And Lance, your thoughts when you were actually doing the episode. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> do you remember the episode at all, Lance? I mean, yes, I do. Yeah, you did. Cool. Briefly, uh, when a meeting between Frank Black and the Millennium Group superiors leads to an angry exchange of verbal blows, Frank decides that he's going to pursue the investigation of a teenager who has gone missing in the Alaskan wilderness, despite their explicit objections. And I'd like to get your first impression. I guess we'll start with you, Dirt, of what you thought of the episode when you first saw it. You know, I, I vividly remember watching the, the, the teaser at the beginning before the credits where he's uh, sitting in the circle of the Millennium Group and they're hitting him with the questions. And I remember thinking, like, what what's going on? Like, I thought the Millennium Group was just this benevolent, wonderful force. And we're starting to see this darker, you know, underside start to come out. And I thought that was so crazy. And then it completely goes away from that. And he, you know, goes off to Alaska and, you know, all the beautiful scenery and the music and everything. And I felt like it was a very different episode than the rest because he's not chasing down a serial killer. But I, I enjoyed it immensely because it was so well crafted and so well put together. William, your thoughts? Um, well, you know, I, what stuck out to me were two things. One is um, I like the um, – not to say that Millennium wasn't a positive show, but it was very dark. But this one, even though it had kind of death and bodies and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff, it, it, it had a very positive tone about, like, living life and everything. And that's what I really liked about it and, uh, you know, about, about finding who you really are and everything like that. And sometimes you're not who you really are, that kind of thing. Uh, and then also um, – I liked it because uh, it gave Catherine something to do, which was really nice because I kind of felt she got a little lost in the second season. And I thought mm-hmm. that gave her a lot of really positive things to do because she's also lost as well. It was a nice – the way the episode was structured was nice because it gave Frank and this uh, – I can't remember the name of the character that uh, the kid who gets lost but um, – or not lost but intentionally lost. And then you had Catherine who had – you know was also kind of trying to figure out where her life was. And it was just a great – Greatly edited episode, in my opinion, in that way. That's a really good comment, because at the beginning of this, when I was sitting in with that group in the Millennium Group, uh, they, I felt like I was lost. So everybody was lost. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's almost like, who, who are we and what are we doing and why are we doing it? You know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So it, it really did set the trend, but in a lot of different languages. You know what I mean? I like that. That opening scene's good. I mean, I think it's very well... Um... 
put together with the whole circle, the whole, uh, you know, Ouroboros sort of circle of, of, and having to have our main character sort of going backwards and forth as they, and I think what I really love in that scene is, is Frank's reply to them at the end when, because I don't know, there was just something very human about him there because we always see him reacting to issues. It was nice to see him sort of being very proactive in that. There was a sort of uh, a different sort of energy in him in that opening scene where he sort of says, right, you know, you know I, I, really, I really wanted more of that in the show. I mean, I, I never got to smile. I never got to, you know, there were so many things that they, they took away from me, including using my hands, you know, and that kind of thing, you know, waving my hands in the air when I talk. It, it was a good direction to go in. You're right, James, you're right. Also, uh, as, a, as the, uh, the fan in me watching that episode, when he stands up at the end and he says, you know, this is a trick bag, and if you don't right. think I see it, you know, you're crazy. And something inside of me was just like, oh, snap, you tell yeah. him, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was my own line. That wasn't in the script. The oh, trick, wow. Oh. The trick bag thing came from my wife. She used to say that to me, you know, putting me in a trick bag, and I say, oh, geez. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the part when you left the uh, interview with the uh, Millennium Group and you walked out and Peter was standing there waiting for you and you just didn't really say anything. You looked at him and did a heavy sigh and just walked away. Yeah, exactly. I thought that you was know, a very telling I, scene. I, I knew we were in, in, into a new direction. And, and one of the things is when all the people you thought were your friends are now becoming your enemies, it's pretty bad. I mean, it, it makes you feel like, uh, you know, it's a very despairing moment. You know, the other the other part of this, this this was a little ahead of into the wild, you know, when in in the sense of a of a kid going out and risking his life to to pursue this, you know, this dream or or to find out what a dream is even, you know, it 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 was a good, a really good script. It really was. There's some really good writers on that show. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Was this the first time there was actually some sort of conflict between you and the Millennium Group? You saw some actual conflict. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. OK. You know, the other thing is there was a there was a scene where we were in the river. He fell into the river off of the off of the thing I was dragging him on. Mm -hmm. And I remember that river was so cold, man. We we could hardly we could hardly breathe, let alone pull somebody out of a river. If mm -hmm. you'd saw if you'd saw the as soon as they said cut, there were like five guys coming to drag us both out of the water because we were so numb. <laughs> it looked like you were cold. Oh man, it was cold. But it, it but you know what? It, I mean it on when when you finally string it all together, it really told the story. What's brilliant about the story, isn't it, is is how it manages to be be both very very quite a or in 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 itself, it's a very sad story, isn't it? I mean, the actual components of it are very sad, and yet obviously the whole the brilliance of that show episode is as as I think was was just said is how uplifting it is as well. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, exactly. That must have, that must have been a sorry, life, life. Life in a lot of ways is a sad story. I mean, really, when you get down to it. You know, we're born, we live, and we die. You know, I mean, that's 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 a given, right? So mm -hmm. there's poetry in the in the in the struggle. And when I found that kid's diary, uh, that that scene to me was really got me because I opened the diary and and it and it somebody had actually written it. I don't know if Chip did or the kid did or, but it was very very touching, really. Mm -hmm. Lance, what were your initial thoughts when you received the script about the episode? I was kind of relieved. Because I felt like here, and also there was a friend of mine in it, um, the guy who played the sheriff in in Alaska. Okay, Brian yeah. James. Brian James, yeah, he was yeah. A, has been a friend of mine for a long time, and and to get to work with him uh, was was really something because he's he's a very wry guy and and very he, 
he doesn't come across very bright, but he is super bright. I mean, he's a anybody with that kind of humor is a very bright guy. Yeah, actually, I was going to say that one of my favorite scenes in that is when you're trying to log into the database and, and you can't get in, your password's rejected. You say, oh, the lines must be down. And he's like, oh, yeah, we just have those, uh, what do they call them, fiber optics. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, you can't bullshit an old bullshitter. Is what he- <laughs> that was a great line. What did you guys think about the uh, this this trip that Alex took? You know, getting rid of all of his worldly possessions, just deciding just to rough it in Alaska without any kind of experience with that kind I, of terrain or anything. I understand that. I mean, if if uh, if you've ever you, you guys have never been married, but uh, well, I mean, I, I know that two of you haven't. Well, I'm I'm married. Yeah, you are. I'm, I'm not. Well, <clears throat> oh, but there there was uh, there's a moment in every after every divorce where you feel like I'm just going to take everything and leave it and walk off into the woods. <laughs> so I understand it, basically. <laughs> Actually, fun. yes. Um, I've got two kids, so I feel that every day. <laughs> you just want to curl up in a ball and kind of heal yourself. Like, right? I'm just going to shut everything off. Like, one thing is I, I stay up late doing a lot of my reviews and my videos, and my wife is always like, why are you up so late? Why don't you come to bed? I'm like, because it's quiet. Because the house is finally quiet, the kids are asleep, the TV's not on. It's you know I can think, I can finally get away and think. <laughs> and so I, I kind of understand that idea of like I'm just going to get away from everything, just go out somewhere where no one's going to bug me, and I can just you know yeah, get back to myself. I, yeah, exactly. We need to hear that inner voice, man. We really do. What did you think about that, William? Um, you know, <laughs> be honest, man. <laughs> well, no, no, I I I really like the idea. I think that. Um, the actual, you know, Into the Wild was kind of the first thing I thought of too. Um, I liked, I liked the idea. I did think it was more of a, of a plot device to, to get some emotion out of Frank, and that's why, in the end, I liked it. I liked when um, Frank gives the body to the sheriff and says, "Take care of him," and then they're like, "Well, why don't you come, come back in here?" And he's like, "No, just give me, you know, just go ahead and fly off and let me have some of my own time mm-hmm. in here exactly. to reflect and everything." And and I, I thought that was really important to the character. So I think, um, uh, what's, what is the name of the kid? Is it Alex? Alex. Alex, Alex okay. Ventu. Yeah, mm-hmm. there we go. You know, I thought what Alex did was, was interesting. I love, I love that. Uh, I love that idea. Um, you know, obviously, you know, it had consequences in the real world. You know, his family didn't know who he was and everything. And it's definitely a very personal thing. And in some ways, kind of a selfish thing. I'm not going to say, you know, obviously he was an 18 year old kid. He had a family, but he didn't have like, you know, a marriage and kids and things that he was abandoning. But, uh, I think it's an important idea that we have. I mean, obviously that's an extreme, but it's also very important that we do find ourselves in some way right, so right. we don't lose ourselves, you know, and that, I think that though that's an extreme example. I think that's very important that we all do that. And I think that Frank needed that, especially at that point in his life during that season and in that character. That's really right. Yeah. You, you know, there, there's another thing, too, you know, when everybody does it in a different style and everybody's going to see it in a different way because of their own, you know, their own life experience. The only the only thing that changed it was when he broke his leg. If he hadn't broken his leg, he probably would have gone on and on and maybe lived to be 60. You know, you don't know. But the point was that he risked everything in that, in that terrain to go out there with nothing or very little and shed everything. To the outside world, it would appear, would appear insane, you know, insanity. But to him, it was more like, uh, how far can I push this, and and what what what's the road leading me to? Mm-hmm. Is it, am I on the road, or, or am I angry at the road, or is the road coming to me? 
I was just thinking about that because I mean, I was, I was, I was interested. I mean, the reminder of the family and the, the selfish act, and I think that's perhaps what's so special about the episode is, is it reminds us that while we, while families and uh, blood and our lives are so, so important to us within our social confines, they aren't really that important to us in a weird way. And I don't mean that in a nasty way at all, mm-hmm. but in the sense that I mean. Uh, you know, as individuals, as spirits, you know, there is something beyond that. And I think that's what's so fascinating about it, because it's one of those very few, episodes, very few shows actually on television, which actually suggests in a positive way that some, t- you know, for some people t- to break out and find some, there is something beyond what we are, our social conformities that, that, that can be explored mm-hmm. and explored proudly without feeling bad about it. And I think you're right. I mean, that point about the, the family, is, it is a horrible, sad byproduct for them. To, to well, well, you know, wait, wait a second. When, when I look at some, I have a 10 year old, she just had her birthday uh, this weekend. And, and, and sometimes quietly I look at her and, and I, when she's, uh, you know, doing something of her own and she's not watching me watch her, I, I look at her and I say, I brought you into this world and someday you're going to die. And it's a very sad thought. It just comes to me as a thought. And, and it's, it's almost like I'm asking myself, I have to surrender her because she's already in the process of pushing away from the table. I mean, as, as a person. And, and when you think about that, one of the things is we don't choose our family. We suddenly, uh, we arrive. And then, and then somewhere along the line, we, we have got to get in contact with ourselves. Right. In, in our own ways. And sometimes that's workaholism. It can be arts. It could be, the, it could be uh, trying to dive into a, uh, you know, another woman's life to, to try to, to uh, find yourself through a woman, and then that doesn't work, then you have to find yourself through, through uh, med- you know, being alone and meditating, and who knows? I mean, there's, so, there's a myriad of, of issues involved in, in becoming a human being that you are searching for, you know what I mean? So it is a cycle, there's a cycle of life. I mean, that's not original, but... <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, actually, one thing one thing I wanted to add is that, um, you know, I, I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and so I've really started to notice how, you know, the four-year-old has become his own person, and the two-year-old is starting to, you know, define herself, and she's starting to learn how to how to string sentences together, and, you know, you you begin to realize that this little baby now has the ability to to create her own thoughts. Mm-hmm. You know, my my son has his own likes and dislikes. And it's so crazy to me to think about, you know, uh, as a baby, you, you think about, oh, you know, this is my family, this is my child that I'm bringing into this world, and you have these thoughts and ideas of what is a family and what does it mean to have a child, and then suddenly it's several years later, and it's yeah. like, what has happened? Yeah. And they've, they've developed into their own people, and then it starts to think, okay, you know, being a family takes work. It's much more than just the fact that you live under the same roof and you all have the same last name. Oh, There's a lot more to it than just that. Oh, yeah. I know you can agree with that, William. You just recently had a, 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 a kid as well, right? I did. And um, it's funny that uh, it's funny that this episode came up because um, I, I have a very different situation. I'm not married. I'm not with the mother. And I have a six-month-old. And, uh, you know, a lot of it is me fighting for time with my daughter and everything like that. Oh, and, um, you know, and it's, it, it's the one thing I, I notice is that, uh, when you don't get to see your child every day, you know, it, uh, it, it gives you kind of a perspective on how precious that is and how much you, 
how much when you watch them develop you miss when you don't see them and then how much you can catch up on when you do and like uh what i think's interesting is uh, you know part of me says you know um i need to learn from this experience and like maybe i could you know i've been i've been alone myself for about a year and a half now and 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 done a lot of personal reflection and and things like that and uh but at the same time i know that though there is a part of me that uh wants to get dug in and and, and you know and just and, and be try this maybe not necessarily a new life but just try new ideas and everything i also have this this precious little life that you know drives my very existence right. that uh i can't do everything i want to do but um at the same time you know uh i think the point we were bringing up is that um I think James was bringing it up. You know, family is. I I don't I don't know how you said it, but you said it right. I don't know how to say it. You said you know family is not important, but I don't know how you said it. But I don't know how I I thought it sounded <laughs> wrong actually. I think yeah. God is making yeah, it sound I, like I think family isn't, but it's it's what someone said earlier, isn't it? The idea of the um. Well, I think we've sort of made the metaphor that the shedding of the skin, and it's as if this life, in all its good and bad, that there is yep. something beyond it, and it's shedding that, and not out of maliciousness or out of not right. caring, just almost like a a, a, a a pureness of well, anyway, with Alex, anyway, not with Frank, obviously, is what what intrigued yeah. me, and maybe I'm not getting it quite in the same. I don't know because I'm not a family. I, I believe in what you're saying because what I noticed is that um, yeah, to to me myself is the most important. Obviously, I have to take care of myself first. But I realized that having a family is also a choice. And like right now, the way my situation is set up, I could very easily just say, you know, go ahead. If, if you want to fight me about it, go ahead and take her and I'll just go. You know, I, I, make, a, I make a solid choice to be there for my daughter. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. I agree with what you're saying. And that, that makes a lot of sense. But and, and it goes both ways. Sometimes you make that sacrifice for yourself. You, you choose to enrich your own life by taking care of another life. And, uh, you know, and I really don't actually know where this is going. I really <laughs> thought this is connected to something, but actually, I, 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 actually I was going to say, if you look at this episode, you see Frank uh, when he's talking to the parents and, uh, you know, they're talking about their son. You really get this idea that these parents have no idea who this kid is. Exactly. Oh, they, oh no. They, and when I handed him the the uh, I tried to hand him the, the diary and he didn't even take it. Yeah. I mean, it was it was as if. I, they were in uh, so much denial that it was unbelievable. Yeah, they had no clue who he was. And I had sympathy for him because because you've missed you've missed something. You know that's the sympathy I had for them was about that. Mm-hmm. You missed an opportunity. But hey, did you know that? Did you know having new kids? Did you know that uh, that a, a child until he's around two believes that he's actually still a part of the mother's body? They're one. Whoa! Did you know that? That's pretty heavy. No. no, that's that's the fact. They don't really they don't realize they're a separate being, and at a certain point they realize it as as time goes on, and they and they uh, they finally start their breakaway. But they start they start to adjust to the fact that they are alone and separate. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Really interesting stuff. Well, on a much more shallow level, I have uh, I have learned that <laughs> a yawn is not contagious until the child is old enough to realize that they're an individual. <laughs> I don't know what that does. I don't know what that means. Anything, but, you know, just throwing it out there. You can That's the first that sign. Out. That's the first sign. Oh shit! The baby yawned. Oh my god. <laughs> no, no, they'll still yawn, it's but it's not contagious. They don't yawn on their own after you yawn. Going to college, it's going to private school. Oh shit! It yawned. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here, folks. 
You heard it yeah. here first. And guys, please forgive me, but I, I it's uh, it's quarter to eleven, and I gotta be, I gotta drive maybe sixty miles right now. Oh, man, oh. it's been a pleasure. It's been a joy, hey, absolute joy. Same, same here, fellas. You know, thanks for being so interested in that show or in in, in Millennium. I, I really believe it's it's a it's a course that if we could get on and, and make the film, it would be worthwhile because it would we would have language, we would have we would have something incredible. So maybe down the road we'll be all sitting in the same theater watching it. I hope so. <laughs> well said. I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. We yeah. appreciate it. I'm hanging up, but uh, I'm beaming up, Scotty. Alaska. I was never honest with you when I came back here. I could never quite explain. But I'll try now while I still can. It happened on the cruise we took through Prince Edward Sound. I was looking at the water and the mountains, which were beautiful, of course, but for a moment, up on the deck of that ship, I couldn't swear it wasn't just an incredibly realistic simulation. Not just the scenery, my whole life. Back home, the feeling never left. All junior and senior year while I studied, ran track, filled out college applications. I returned here to find my life again. I had to. I don't quite understand what draws me on, but that's okay because God doesn't move us by telling us the facts. He moves us by pains and contradictions. He's given me a lack of understanding, not answers, but questions. An invitation to marvel. And here, for the first time, I have. And as one shooting star twinkles out of sight, another comes to illuminate our millennium-rich sky. Replacing Lance, we have the long-term supporter of Back to Frank Black, and this is who we are, the lovely and proactive campaigner, uh, Rhonda Wayman. She's been shouting out on our blog for a long time now, and we're very glad to give her the opportunity to shout to us in person. Rhonda, hello there. Hello there. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Well, Rhonda, if you wouldn't mind uh, just giving us a brief, your initial thoughts of the episode when you first watched it. And I'm sure you've watched it since, right? Many times, many times, especially this morning. Took several pages of notes. Um, I really enjoyed the episode. It's so different from any other episode. It also gives the mom the intuition to know that her son is alive. And having and being a mom, I can understand where she was coming from. Mm-hmm. It was so different. It had none of the other aspects of um, millennium. There weren't any, you know, stalkers running around or anything like that. But I also think it encompasses a lot of the parts that you don't know about because we've seen the future and we know how things are going to end. But in this episode, it makes you question an awful lot. Like Frank's questioning the millennium group. Catherine's questioning her reasons for separating from Frank. And Jordan, she sees her father as an angel instead of the devil that Catherine thinks she believes she, he is. So I really did enjoy the episode. I believe that Frank questions his association with the Millennium Group, and I believe that it actually is the beginning of the end. Can I say so, one of the things that you just said there, which um, about I forgot about with Jordan, just very quickly, one of my favorite moments of the episode is that look she gives uh, Frank when his beeper goes off yeah. there in the auditorium. 
I just I know it's not quite the same, but you just reminded me. I just had to say that. I just love that little bit. Her little face is mm-hmm. uh, yeah, very adult look on her face. That's oh bloody yeah. hell. And on that note too, I wanted to I wanted to tell you like um from this is why I like season two better than season one and three, is because I feel like the little layers like that uh, add up in the show. And um, even when they're sitting in the uh, when they're sitting in the planetarium, you know the guy is doing a monologue about the millennium, and it's very subtle and it's very you know and like that's what I thought at least the show is in the second season, no matter how crazy it got, focused on the millennium. It's like it's all like little production aspects that they. Little like th- little clues and hints that they kept uh, adding on to, and I thought it was just a much more. It was much. It was better structured. Yeah. You know, in, from a production aspect, and that when you watch that episode, things are building and building and building, and I, and little things like that, where, where the way Jordan looks at her father, or the mm-hmm. way the separations going, or the mentions of the millennium, things like that. It's all. It all builds really properly. I thought that was really nice. Yes. Very. You know, I was I was just uh, actually thinking about um, the episode and how. In many ways, it seems to me like the beginning of of season three, where when I originally watched it, I thought, well, you know, that's kind of interesting, but it didn't really have an impact on me. And I think when they switched from season two to season three, I kind of had that same feeling where I watched the first, you know, three or four episodes and it really didn't. I was just kind of like, man, you know, whatever, they, they changed direction. This was a different direction than a lot of the other episodes. But then when I went back and watched it later, Knowing that it was going to be different, I, I still went back and I, I thought, oh, well, this does fit. Like, there's a lot of stuff here that really does fit with the theme of the show, with a lot of the mm-hmm. things they were trying to get across. Mm-hmm. But on a superficial level, I really wasn't catching it at the time that I was viewing it. Right. And the same way with the beginning of season three, a lot of those episodes, I was like, oh, you know, they've, they've gotten rid of the Millennium Group. They've done all this crazy other stuff. These going back to the FBI. It felt so different. But then when I watch them again later then I began to go, oh, I see what it was really trying to do here. But at the time I was just, you know, uh, so, I don't know, shallow in watching it that I kind of missed out on a lot of stuff that was going on. Well, I got that as well, because when I watched it, I watched it late because I didn't get season two until a lot later, in fact, a couple of years ago. And I'd read on the blo- on the fan boards how, um, how wonderful this episode was. So when I watched it first, I was disappointed um, because... As you say, I think what's good in it is so subtle. What's about the rest of you, uh, Rhonda? Did you, did you did you feel when you first saw it? Did it give you the same? Did, did that did that episode grow on you, or was it always good for you? How did how did you feel when you first saw it? Well, I first saw it when it was first introduced way back when, and I don't recall. It's been a while ago. <laughs> I remember it being one of my specific favorites because it was so off target from most of the other episodes. Like Dirt said, the first episode of season three, I didn't even want to watch. I was so mad because they had killed Catherine at the end of season two. And they go right back into season three like nothing ever happened. And, and it takes, what, five or six episodes before you get to the Sound of Snow to find out what even happened to Catherine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's more, I think that's more troubled production issues than actual storytelling issues. I Chip think does that actually... Was... Chip speaks about that on our blog at the moment. So anyone listening to this, if you go to the Back to the Fan Black blog, there is an interview, a written interview with Chip, and he actually talks about the issues of that starting off from yeah. season three quite candidly. So it's worth Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it, it kept me watching because I wanted to see. I knew they'd eventually tell us what had happened to Catherine, you know, but it, it just took too long. And by the time she did, then it ends up being one of my favorite episodes. Right. But... Mm. Uh, yeah, they, they kind of drag us along for a couple episodes there before they let us know what happens. 
But going back and reviewing this video after having seen everything, watching it again last night, watching it this morning and taking some notes, I just sit there in total amazement. I mean, the Serene Mountains, you just fall in love with the whole episode from the female point of view because it is so calm and serene. And you don't understand why Alex Glaser has done what he has done until you get a little further into the episode. And Mark Snow's soundtrack, just it's right on every time. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, to go back to what you guys were talking about, about the episode kind of being different than the others. I mean, if you look at the episodes that are packaged around Luminary, they were starting to get in some goofy, crazy stuff there. I mean, like you got... Jose Chung's Doomsday Defense, and then Midnight of the Century, and then Goodbye Charlie, which was Goodbye Charlie is one of the weird one of the weird ones. Yes, 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 very much. And, and then Luminari, then Luminari, and then or Luminary, whatever we call it, and then and went to the Mikado and the and the Pest House and Owls and Roosters and everything. So, it is kind of this, um, you know, I mean, in comparison to the to what surrounds it, it is a very completely different episode from Demon Dogs and Singing Doctors and <laughs> you know yes. Internet Killers and stuff like that. I I, I remember when I first watched it in initial run in '96, like Rhonda did, and I just kind of, I just kind of glossed over it. Like like Dirt said earlier, I was a little shallow back then, so I kind of, I kind of glossed over the episode. Back then, good thing we've gotten past that now, huh? Uh huh. Uh huh. (laughs) I remember thinking like, who cares about the kid if he wants to go, let him go, blah blah blah. And and then as I as I became older and started watching episodes again, I had more of appreciation for the episode and really enjoyed it. It's become one of my favorite episodes. You know, and I think I'm that way with a lot of episodes. Like, when I really think back about, like, even Beware of Dog, I remember watching that one and being like, you know, who cares? Like, what's this guy <laughs> in the mountain with these dogs? Like, what's the big deal? Of course, it plays out later through the season. You find out why the old man was so important. But at the time yeah. you're watching it, you're just like, I want answers now. Exactly. You know, like, what are yeah. you doing stringing me along like this? And, um, you know, Goodbye Charlie was another one you mentioned. And The Pest House, those are ones that I remember – when they aired and being just kind of like, you know, uh, that was interesting, but whatever. Mm-hmm. And just kind of shoved it aside. But then later, you know, I, I, um, I started videotaping the series when it was on the air and I had holes here and there. And so when they were replaying it on the mm-hmm. FX network in 99, 2000, I started filling in those gaps, uh, in my collection. And so I had yep. this whole run of videotapes and I'm one of those people that, I write Millennium on the videotape, and I recorded it, but I didn't write down what the episodes were. Right. So a lot of times I would sit down and just put in a tape, and I had no idea what I was going to watch because <laughs> it was just there. And so I would watch some of those episodes again and go, oh, okay, now you know there, there are things that were being set up here that paid off down the road that weren't necessarily you know, in your face uh, you know, right when you were watching the episode, that I began to appreciate a little bit more of what they were doing with the series as a whole, as opposed to uh, just these one and done episodes that you sometimes run across. There's a moment in that in that episode where um, I didn't notice it till I watched it this time, but I, it actually kind of keys you into the Alex character, and it's when um, it's when the sheriff is showing the photo of Alex all beat up and stuff, and Alex is like smiling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. The way the sheriff is describing him, and because you have it, you don't really know what's going to happen to the character. You just assume he's kind of this wild, nutty kid, and that he's, you know, selfish and he's he's abandoned his family and he's just going off and living all crazy. And he's smiling because he's kind of got something like a screw loose or something. <laughs> but at once once the episode is revealed, like what what his true intentions are and everything, I think that smile is the most telling thing, because he's living the life he wants to live. Great sure, point. he's get. 
speed up and everything. But I didn't notice that the first time I watched it. And I watched it this morning and kind of – because I actually kind of didn't really remember what was going to happen. So seeing that, I kind of knew that he was doing this on purpose. So like when I saw that smile, I was like, man, that's really a good tell. You know, that he yeah. was – he's finally like at peace. So even though he's getting beat up in the wilderness by a bunch of guys, he's feeling good. And that's why he's smiling. That's yeah. That was the biggest tell to me in, in watching the episode, the little detail that I think you don't pick up on sometimes. And he's being honest with himself, I think. And that's mm-hmm. once you can get to that point where you're not worried about how everyone's going to judge you, yeah. you know, you're doing what you're doing because that's who you are. Exactly. And and that's the same thing that's kind of going on with Frank, where he's so worried about the group and is how is the are. group helping yes. him and how is the group reacting to him and does the group really have uh, the best intentions in supporting him and all that kind of stuff. And so he's doing – Frank is doing what he feels he has to do. He's being honest and truthful to himself, and that's you know what Alex is doing there. I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts, and Rhonda will start with you, about this – this beginning of this tension between Frank and the Millennium Group. What did you think of that? Were you for that? Were you against that? Well, I wasn't sure how to take the Millennium Group, but by this point I knew they weren't all out there just for the good of mankind. They were out there for a higher purpose, and at this point we don't really know what that is. But the fact that they, in the trick bag that Frank's in at the beginning, they refer to what he did as ultraviolence. Well, I mean, in my opinion, that was justifiable homicide. I think that the group knew who the Polaroid stalker was. I'm pretty sure they knew where he was, but yet they tell him not to go in. But when Frank goes in there, he didn't go in to kill the guy, I don't think. But when he ends up attacking him, of course he's going to kill him. He brutalized his wife. He makes his wife think that their daughter's dead. I mean, just Frank at this point is questioning everything. Mm-hmm. If he wasn't separated from Catherine, is there a possibility that his focus would have been more with the Millennium Group instead of making him question his association with them? James. I'd be curious to know what you guys think. I I found, as I found a lot of this season, I did did feel this episode suffered a little um, from this 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 rewrite vibe, where it it feels it's trying to push an idea across, which I never felt was really there before. I never really felt that that Frank really did put the Millennium Group before his family, which this this season very much kept putting, and it puts at the beginning of this episode. And I didn't also feel, again, I didn't feel that, I mean, everyone was coming down on Frank for this, this, this murder. And while it is very much against his personality, and I can see that, there was just something in me as the audience which didn't really gel with it, that didn't feel, I, 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 did, did you know what I mean? It just, just felt a little, a little contrived as if the story was being rewritten a little for the sake of it. And I don't know, maybe that's just me, but... Um... I actually kind of agree with you, but in a different way. I think that um, the contrived part is that if if Frank is true to his character, after that meeting, he would just be like, forget it. I'm done with this. This is so silly. Cause like, because um, I think the whole point of that meeting was for Frank to be the eyes for the audience. So we're sitting in this meeting going like, what is the deal? Yeah. You know, like, why, why are you being such, you know, bastards Just, like about it, you know? Right, right. And, and I, I think that the, the contrived part is that Frank kind of keeps coming back to this group when I think really his character would just be like, okay, this is just too weird. You know, like, so I think I agree with you. I think that, uh, I think that it, it, it actually set up the appropriate amount of weirdness, but I think the, the fact that he kept he keeps coming back to the group, you know, trying to get into their acceptance when they're obviously like crazy owl rooster people is, (laughs) you know, that's where I get a little, that's where I have a little difficulty because Frank seems like a smart person. And if I sat in that meeting, like if I, cause you know, 
so far, season one and half of season two, some of them seem a little questionable because they're all probably eccentric people and they're all obviously the best in their field, so they have to be a little different. They're not, you know, run-of-the-mill cops and stuff. And Peter Watts has kind of been a little shaky. But if I, if I, if I was Frank and I sat in that meeting, I just would have been like, okay, done. Don't need to, you know, I don't need to be part of this group anymore because you guys are all sitting in a, in a, in a little, like, office in a circle <laughs> and asking me all kinds of questions and, and judging my character and everything. And, like, you know, and so that's why when it said, like, at the end, um, the part I didn't like was at the end when it was, like, you passed the first uh, testament or trial or whatever. Yeah. I was, election. I was like, oh, what is it? It's the election. Oh, election. I was kind of like, really? Okay. I, I, I don't <laughs> well, know. That's... Yeah, I I, you know, know. If, if if I could jump in here for a second, I think that they they kind of address that later on in the season, and I'm, I don't remember exactly what episode it was, but I think it was it may have been actually the the final episode or the the uh, the part one of the uh, you know two part uh, season finale or whatever where he's staying there talking to Catherine and says something about you know th- they know there's an earthquake coming, and she's you know I'm sick of these prophecies, and he says something about how I would love you know, to tell them to take their prophecies and just stick them and walk away from this whole thing. But there's something more going on here, and i got to know what it is. And, you know, he says something along yeah. those lines. That's not an exact quote. But that, to me, it, it, it's kind of going to that same idea where it's like, yeah, these guys, they may have some, some bad intentions or they have intentions that are their own which may lead to bad things or they allow bad things to happen just to get to the point where they want to be or whatever. But there's obviously something going on here. And for Frank, he's got to get to the bottom of that mystery. He's got to stick with it because if he does turn and walk away, he's going to spend the rest of his life being plagued by this idea of what the heck was going on here. So for me as a viewer, I'm thinking the same thing. I'm like, why did they just turn on him at this beginning? And then at the end when they're like, oh, yeah, you passed. It's like, what is going on here? I've got to stick with this and figure out what the heck is happening. Yeah. Because to me, this is a big mystery too, and I just I got to see what's going on. I agree. I do too. Maybe, maybe a bit. I mean, because the whole idea of Millennium in this this season is, is that it's more of a cult than anything else in a way, right? And maybe yeah, there's yeah. a bit of that as well. I mean, he's in a very vulnerable situation here, and while he's not a very vulnerable man in a lot of ways, maybe that's sort of where it's going with this: is that he's already made his bed, he's lost his family in a way for this group. In a way, if he gives up now, you know, is, is he betrayed everything? Yeah, is it for nothing? And maybe there's that sort of vulnerability that they're playing on as well, because they know he's in that situation. And uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm being a bit of a disservice about the way that they, because in the end, they were obviously trying to rewrite the, uh, they, they, were, they were obviously trying to rewrite, to, to, to give the show a different feeling for season two. And that is hard yeah. to do. And perhaps I'm being a bit hard on them saying it was a bit obvious it was contrived, <laughs> but, you know, because in the end, what else could they do? It was something they felt the show needed to do. Um, Plus but, you have to, I mean, the thing is, is that the Millennium Group is so different in season one from what it is in season two, that this massive shift in tone is kind of hard to swallow at first, you know, because yeah. in the first one, it was kind of, they were, I, I don't think, and this isn't a problem with the writing or anything, I think, that, I just don't think they had any idea they were going to go this, let's find pieces of the crucifixion cross kind of craziness. <laughs> I think that like, I think that they literally just thought that in the background, the Millennium Group would be a secretive, but you know, just a, they're just a, a group of investigators that do certain cases, you know, and I think suddenly when the, when the producers changed, it, it became this thing. And so I think it's kind of unsettling because I, I like to go back and see if there's any clues, you know, and when you watch season one, there really is no clue that it's going to go that direction. It's exactly. kind of like, it's kind of like, oh, really? Like, oh, they are, they, 
this Millennium Group existed back, like, you know, in the, you know, in the first century. Like, it was just very, like, it, I don't know. It, it, it came out of nowhere. It yes. definitely comes out of nowhere. And though I like it, um, I think that my problem with the Millennium Group, I try not to actually examine them because when you have uh, behind-the-scenes production issues with, like, changing hands of, like, producers and stuff, I think that, I mean, obviously, season one is a certain way, season two is a certain way, and season three is a certain way, and the Millennium Group changes. And uh, I think the only constant is uh, Peter Watts, who uh, <laughs> I, re- I really liked uh, in this episode how he, uh, you know, he's obviously, he's come to terms with his position, and he has his family, and, and his family's intact and everything. And, um, you know, uh, Catherine's trying to figure out how that works, you know, and, and Lan- you know, obviously Lance, obviously Frank is trying to, uh, <laughs> you know, figure that out himself. I kind of got the impression from them, this episode that Peter might actually question his connection to the Millennium Group. I mean, in the beginning, he says that's the way they like it. And then he says we. And and then there's a couple of other points in this mm, episode yeah. where I think maybe, you know, when he's talking to Catherine, he says to Catherine, you know, you know, I'll answer you when you're ready to listen to me. And then she goes to his house and he goes outside and he talks to her and he tells her, you know, you need to find out what part you play in this. And Good I'm point. assuming that that's what Barbara, his wife, had to do. And basically, she had to accept for what he was doing, regardless of what it was, because she didn't know what he was doing. Good point. But I think Peter himself questions it. Now, I don't know, again, if it's because I know what the future holds. Well, and he, I think that that does come out again at the end of the series, in the final exactly. episode. Exactly. So you, you do see that, too. But I, I guess for me, uh, you know, my whole life I've grown up reading comic books. And so every, you know, year, every six months, there's a new writer, new artist on a series. And mm-hmm. so I guess I'm just kind of used to seeing the same characters through different eyes again and again and again and again. So when you went from season one to season two and then season two to season three, there were big shifts in the storytelling and, and some of the relationships with the characters. But I think for me, as someone who's kind of used to that anyway, I just kind of took it. Right as you know relationships change over time and Mm -hmm. as you get sometimes as you get closer to people you get farther apart from people that's a good point and i just kind of just went along with it and said you know yeah um there's more going on to the millennium group than they originally thought but you're going to learn that over time if that's true so i just kind of you know sucked it up and went with it well yeah i i I kind of agree with you but i read a lot of comic books too but to me it was like season one is like amazing spider-man and then like you know like Peter Parker goes to Aunt May's house to have pie, and then season two would be like, Peter Parker goes to Aunt May's house, who runs the occult? You know, it's just, it's like, you know, like, I don't know, it just seems like... Didn't they do that? No, 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 I'm sorry. It just, it just seems like, you know, a little bit of too much of a jump, but I, I see your point, actually, I might be able to appreciate it a little bit more that maybe I'm looking at it from a meta perspective, like I'm looking at it, I'm looking at the stories being told from a production aspect, and maybe I should just look at them from a story perspective. We are meant to be here. We step from one piece of holy ground to the next under stars that ask, imagine for one second you could drop in on a past life. What would you like to find yourself doing there? What would charm you, make you proud? Ask yourself that. And the question of what to do in this life becomes so simple, it's terrifying. Just to do that thing that would charm you. 
that would make you say, yes, it's the real me. Do that, and you're alive. Alex Vantu. And we're back. And uh, I'm afraid we've had to say goodbye to our, our good friend Rhonda there. Uh, we've had a few uh, digital gremlins, as they might be called. Thank uh, you. Well, we call them gremlins. Some people call them gremlins. We call them Troy Foreman. I appreciate that. <laughs> yes, yeah. A couple of technical difficulties there. This has uh, forced us to re-air... To, to restart again uh, for our third session, our third unexpected session. We thought this would be whole, one whole session. Then we got we got Lance in at the beginning, and then obviously we've got Rhonda in the second. So we've got a beginning, middle, and end. Okay, so really, I think we'll continue on. I think our major topic we've not discussed is is the is the dead body, which I think everyone who's talked about this on forums has always come across is the dead body. You know, was it or was it not, uh, Alex? Uh, I don't know. William, do you want to start? I'll just bring up a point that uh, you were bringing up before we, you know, had uh, technical problems. Uh, and that was uh, that possibly, even though we don't know who the body was, which kind of bothers the hell out of me because I kind of want to know that was just kind of like, you know, it, it kind of was like, oh, it's not him. But, you know, uh, I think we were mentioning the possibility of, uh, if not ethereal or like ghostly, but maybe perhaps a metaphor for Alex's um, old life. You know, Old life, yes. Yeah. So that was something James brought up before, and I'll just I'll just steal it as my own uh, now. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, the whole idea that um, you know it, it's possible that that's the representation of him shedding his skin, so to speak. Right. You know, um, it's an interesting idea. I didn't actually even think about it until uh, I, I heard about it from James. So you know, hogwash, I say, hogwash. <laughs> I don't buy it. Uh, you know, the, what what I believe is that we we saw instances of him later on where he uh, you know gave away his expensive watch. Um, he was uh, you know buying drinks and food for other people, and so I'm just running on the assumption that you know at some point he met up with somebody who needed a coat or needed some clothes or whatever, and he said, you know what, take mine. And so that's that's the body you find is just some random person who has taken part of something that he's given away. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that that plays really well into this idea that um, originally you're supposed to think it's that boy, um, Alex, because, you know, it's wearing his clothes. It's about the same height he is, about the same age he is, but it's uh, it turns out not to be him because he has just given his stuff away because he's given up on that idea that uh, he's tied to physical elements in this world. He's tied to his clothes or his um, you know, he gives away his watch, he gives away his telescope to his brother, you know, all that kind of stuff doesn't weigh him down anymore. And that's your clue that he's really getting on and starting this new chapter in his life. But is there, is there an, a counter argument that generally speaking in fiction, if it's uh, you take what is seems uh, what is extrapolated from the story over what is presumed, if you see what I mean, there's never anything that actually says that uh, his coat was taken uh, from the, you know, sorry, he gave his coat away. Um, so, you know, would there be an argument that what the story seems to infer is, is, is I mean, I'm not saying this is right, this is devil's advocate here, right, that right. there is something more either uh, allegorious, uh, I don't know if that's actually a word, or metaphorical there, or something ethereal. Would that be a natural inclination? Because the script doesn't actually ever make any notation to another person, does it? I, I'm just point, putting the point to you. Uh, 
I, I was just going to say that, yeah, I think you can definitely make the point that there's a, a, a metaphor being made of, of his old self dying off, and there's this body wearing his old clothes, and it's, it's found dead. But I don't think that that's supposed to really represent um, his old physical being, you know, like somehow he's split in two, and that's his old body dying off. You know, used in a in a uh, literary sense, I think it works, but not in a literal sense that I think some people try to uh, to push on the story. Mm -hmm. Could could one argue then? Uh, no. This is posed to both of you. <laughs> yes, 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 we bloody well could. <laughs> could could we argue then? And we don't know this for sure, so we could be doing Chip and everyone else a massive disservice. Could it be that is that an error in the script that it doesn't make that that very relevant point because i remember coming out of it feeling actually a little dissatisfied when i first watching it thinking well i don't know for sure what that body was and that's not making me feel very happy do you think they should have actually made i mean as you say if perhaps it was that he'd given the coat away which is entirely logical as you say given his personality do you think they should have made that clear at some point somehow well two two things so one i uh, i think that uh, they actually show the coat in the picture of him with the um when he when he was beat up like his mugshot i think yeah, he had yeah. that jacket on and then second um i think it was just a i think it's just a uh, television tease i mean remember they say we found the body and then it you know it it shows the guy you know shows the dead body goes dun 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 by man in you know and it goes off <laughs> and then you know like and then it comes back and you find out it's not really the you know yeah. right right the, yeah, yeah. the right person so it's probably just a it's probably just a generic a generic way to make you literally turn you know tune in after you've gone to the bathroom when the commercials are playing you know i kind of agree with that yeah that's kind of what i see happening too especially you know um something Rhonda said um on our first take of this she said that uh, you know they say he's what 511 and somewhere 25 30 years of age and yeah. you know, how many people does that describe exactly you know uh, that that could be just about anybody as far as that description goes so yeah well, I think so dude had a hole in his face so i mean you know you can't really tell you know who is it there, is does it actually I'm, I'm trying to remember i mean i watched it today but i didn't watch it as closely as i should have on this one point and i think i have in the past but aside from the jacket the clothes are are different to what alex is wearing at the end isn't it what the dead body's found in doesn't apart from the jacket and i, I should have checked this this should have been an obvious thing to check uh, and I do think they are actually different, which would support, again, this point that it, even though it's not stated, it's implied that obviously he's giving stuff away. I think they are different, if I'm not mistaken. I think they are as well. That's I mean, my reflection, but, you know, well, you know, since I'm always right on everything, uh, <laughs> that and yeah. say that that's true. So let me ask you, and since you guys have watched this episode recently, and you've, of course, watched it earlier, except I think... Um, our good friend William here. Do you have a better appreciation for the show, the episode now than you did before? Because I know I do. Because the first time I watched Luminary, I kind of like, yeah, it was okay. Who cares about a guy going into the woods and blah, blah, blah. But now that I've watched it since then, I've have, I have a greater appreciation for the episode. Do you guys feel well, the same way? It appears that just a guy running around the forest, writing a journal is going to be kind of like when you're presented with maybe six episodes in a row and that one's stuck in the middle, it can be forgettable. But when I watched it on my own, when I watched it, I, I've been removed from Millennium in terms of watching it consistently for you know probably about a year now. Uh, when I just popped it in the DVD today, I was I was just presented with this I mean just this great feeling. It was so nice not only to watch the show again because it's been a while, but just 
you know, it just was such a perfectly crafted, well done episode that I think it needs isolation to be appreciated uh, completely. Yeah, I remember um, Yosef said something in the comments where for him, he didn't really appreciate the episode a whole lot because it was so different than a lot of the other episodes because he wasn't tracking down a killer. You know, there was that part of what he felt made a Millennium episode you know, missing. And for me, I think that, you know, at the time when I was originally watching it, I may have had that same type of mindset if I, if I really sit and think about it, thinking, you know, where's, where's the serial killer part? Where's all the, you know, the gory, dark, uh, you know, stuff that I really, you know, came to expect from a Millennium episode. But looking back on it now, um, being much older, you know, 10 years older, uh, being married, having a couple kids, um, you know, I've, I, I'm in a different spot in my life where I really see um, my life differently in terms of how I relate to other people, my responsibilities to other people, um, what my life means. And so when you watch an episode like this about a guy who basically gives up on his life and starts over, it does take a completely different meaning. Looking back on the episode where it fits in to the grand arc of Millennium with Frank um, – you know, he's working for them, then he's becoming part of them, and then he's working against them. It's one of those episodes where when you look back on it, you really see how this is Frank questioning his allegiance to the group, where he starts to, you know, really have a lot of these doubts and starts to kind of fast track what we see happening at the end of the season. I, I think, as we said in my in the first take, it was one of the um, episodes which on the Internet, because I only saw it for the first time now two years ago. It was really it, the fans really uh, drum rolled it, and understandably, obviously now I'm one of the fans. I can see why they did. But at the time when I went in, I was expecting something really quite revelationary, and it's such a subtle, gentle episode that I, I think, in a way, it probably it probably damaged the show a little because people were obviously expecting, as Joseph was saying, killer of the week at the very least, and the show was perhaps in some ways probably too too many layers for it to be pre, pre, to be appreciated on its first uh, first run. And for a lot of people, for the majority of the audience, 90% of them, the first run is probably your only run. So you don't have them able to really get involved into it and understand it later on, which is a shame. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's grown with age. And uh, as I said before, it, it started off with me, as I say, wasn't very pleased with it. Second, third one, I really got into it and I loved trying to work out what, Alex, where Alex was going, enjoying the question of the the body and the the whole uh, question of what wh- what the whole question of the, the episode was. And now I watch it. I listen. I watch it for the music and I watch it for the for the for the aesthetics, the beauty and the actual in the writing, in the acting, in the directing. It's those those things which make it such a pleasant watch. And I no longer worry about what Alex was or what that body was. I just enjoy it and let it. Uh, I let it, it roll over me like a, a very fluffy steamroller. Uh, it's uh, it's a, it's a nice experience, uh, fluffy steamrollers. So yeah, well, uh, no. I, I think the uh, the whole plot itself is very unique to not just Millennium, but if you notice, TV shows in general um, have ensemble casts or a lot of cast members. And especially in the second season, I mean, really, Millennium is really a single man show. I mean, I know that. Um, you know, uh, Catherine is is one of the listed as one of the regulars and things like that, and and there there are some uh, you know side characters that play an important role. But um, in the end, the show is really Frank Black's show, and I think this really you really wouldn't be able to work this kind of plot and this kind of like this kind of meaning and symbolism and 
all the stuff that this episode means if the show was about more than one person. I think right. this is so specifically for Frank Black's character. That's why I think it also makes it more powerful because the closer you get to understanding this investigation, the closer you get to understanding how Frank Black works. And that's, you know, that's the soul of the show, yeah. I think. Well, I was just going to say, if I can go back to something James said a minute ago, um, talking about the show, people who watch it one time and, you know, first run and they're done, uh, never go back to it. I think if Millennium was on now, um, you know, of course, they'd have to retitle it because we're not heading towards a Millennium. But I think if, if, if the show is on now with DVR, with people watching again online while they're sitting at work, all the message boards that are prevalent, um, you know, all the people who like especially shows like Lost or now Flash Forward or things like that where people pick apart every small detail mm-hmm. and discuss every little nuance. I think a show like Millennium, in a sense, was ahead of its time because if it was on mm-hmm. now, you would see people having these discussions that, that we are now having because we have this ability to build a community and share with so many people and go back and watch again and again and again and again, whereas back in that time, you really did watch it once and you never watched it again because very rarely did shows come out on VHS, and if they did, you got two or three episodes on a tape and then that was it. Yeah. You know. So I think if it was on today, it definitely would be a lot stronger uh, and it would be a lot easier for people to you know, catch up because I know so many people watch shows, they, they wait until the season's over, and then they just get the DVDs and watch them all at once. Yeah. That's and so nice. that's something that really builds that, that wasn't available back then. I'm also glad, though, that the show's not overexposed, though, because, um, you know, uh, you know, The X-Files is my favorite show, but it's on 70 times a day on four different channels. <laughs> and the cool thing about Millennium is um, it makes – obviously it makes it difficult to expose it to a more mainstream audience – uh, obviously, it was on mainstream television, but it was it was canceled probably for a reason because people weren't watching it as much as, you know, they had hoped. Uh, but you know, I do kind of like the culty feel to it because it's not overexposed yet. I can watch this episode and not feel like I'm going to see it every time I turn on Sci-Fi Channel or exactly. WB or whatever. And that's, I think that 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 lends to the atmosphere a little bit. I mean, that the problem with um, like the X Files was after a while that especially when they moved from Vancouver to LA, they kind of lost their atmosphere. They lost their mystery. And yeah, I think it millennium feel special anymore. Yeah. And I think millennium will always kind of have a specialness to it that I like, even if a movie's made, which would be fantastic. That's one movie and you revisit the series. It's not going to be like this crazy over, you know, overexposed uh, phenomenon, which is, I think actually helps the show more than anything else. That's an interesting I think, point. Yeah. I, I think it's, what is good. And it's something you, really going on the same tangent as what you were saying. There was a, uh, a very well-written post on the This Is Who We Are message boards about the idea that the, a film would not really be likely because, you know, you, you look at the X-Files and the budget you need and the mainstream wouldn't be interested in a big bonanza. And it's this mistake in this assumption that if this millennium was made into a film, it would have to be a mainstream summer blockbuster. And when it, in the fact is, it wouldn't, and it benefits from the fact that it wouldn't, because uh-huh, that's uh-huh. exactly what you don't want with that film. You want it to be able to breathe, and to do what the show did, and to do that. Unfortunately, it can't be a show, a, a film which is going to get heavily financed, because that's not uh-huh. what mainstreams want, and that's good for us. I think it could still happen. Lance still wants it to happen, and from the very beginning, Lance has always said that he he really wanted something which was actually. Uh, more, more adult than Millennium was something where there was less. Uh, it wasn't sanitized. 
Yes, sanitized is the word he always uses, yeah. isn't it? It yeah. wasn't sanitized, where it could be something more, uh, mm-hmm. more gritty mm-hmm. and more real in 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 a, in a real sense of characters. So, I think that's well, good. I think it's good that it's not mainstream in that way. Well, I think well, that's one of the. Seen... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Drake. Uh, just real quick, I think that's one of the mistakes that when you when you talk to people about a millennium movie, they're thinking, oh, it's got to be a it's got to be a blockbuster. It's got to come out in the summertime when all the big blockbusters are coming out, and that's not what millennium movie is going to be. I don't think it's going to be that. In fact, I know it's not going to be that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm thinking of two examples here. Uh, I mean, have you, you guys have seen the second X-Files movie, right? Yes. All of you? Okay. You know, that was a very uh, low budget um, and uh, a very intimate film. I mean, it was almost like it was made just for the fans. You know, like it, it almost said – it's almost like Chris Carter said, forget, you know, trying to get mainstream. That's what they tried to do with the first X-Files movie, and that kind of fell on its face, even though it made $200 million or whatever it – you know – it wasn't what he had hoped. And I think for Millennium to work, I think, uh, and the other example I was thinking of was Serenity based on the Firefly television yeah. series, which was also very low budget. If you think about it, I mean, Serenity was made for very cheap compared to the blockbusters. And they tried to make that one a blockbuster and that fell in its face. I think, uh, and in the end, it kind of sacrificed a little bit for its fans. It, it tried to be too mainstream, you know, and, and didn't give enough about the TV show. I think Millennium to be successful would be to honor its, its core which is to make a film that is atmospheric, adult, and uh, and uh, creepy, and, and not necessarily try to get teenage boys in the seats. And I think in the end, that kind of word of mouth will will apply better than something that's going to try to be something it's not. And because I, I mean, the other thing about Millennium that's really cool that I like about it is there's not so much. Um, fandom to it and what i mean by that is it's not like there's not a lot of catchphrases catchphrases that people can repeat there's not a yeah, lot of yeah. like franchisable things to it there's not a lot of pop can... culture ick to it you know what i mean yeah, yeah. and that's uh that's something that's uh really kind of neat i think that um you know i think i think this could be my fear would be and i mean i'm not some movie expert or anything but you know that there's two types. I mean, you have your summer movies and you have your, your Oscar time movies, which is like the winter movies. And then you have your January and February releases, which can be very frightening because those are all when the studios decide to dump their movies that they don't have faith in. And um, I can see Millennium going both ways depending on who handles it. You know, I think that if it if it's in the wrong hands and it's not done right, it could be one of those January releases that's just a schlocky horror film but i think uh, i think if they stick to the theme of the series and don't worry about making it a blockbuster i mean you could have a winter release maybe not an award winner but something that uh will feel like the season you know something dark and gray and, mm-hmm. and creepy and you know i think that would be and uh i think that'd be pretty interesting i think one of the things that, that would have to be kept in mind is that a lot of times when they try to develop tv shows into movies they try to shoot for that pg pg-13 and mm-hmm. Millennium is one of those where you you can make that film an R. Oh yeah. And and that's that's really the crowd you're attracting. You know, um, mm-hmm. anybody who's going to a PG-13, uh, you know, who can only get into a PG-13 isn't really going to uh, appreciate it anyway. I mean, that's not really where the uh, where the fans are. That's not really where the crowd is. You make that movie an R movie, you know, it doesn't have to be nudity and people getting decapitated and whatever but that show being on network television for as dark and creepy as it was it gave people nightmares without doing a whole lot of gore 
Yeah. You know, so then if they said, okay, well, now we've got an R, we can break out of some of those constraints without going too crazy. You know, you don't want to do a straight up slasher film, but I think that's a movie that could really benefit from saying, okay, we're dealing with adults. We're going to give them the story, and we're not going to worry about having to kind of fall into some type of arbitrary rate. It's funny. I already think that the pilot for Millennium is kind of already a movie. And yeah. it's, it's, to me, it's like a rated R movie, too, because I think that pilot is absolutely just ugh, mind-bogglingly frightening. I mean, that that still gives me chills thinking about some of the stuff that goes on in that. How that got on television, I don't know. I, I, mean, <laughs> I, I really, I'm really, it really surprises me. I'm not, I'm no, I'm no prude or, you know, scaredy cat, but I mean, that, that seems like something that would be in a theater, not on television, you know? Yeah, yeah. that's they, exactly they got what away Lance with said. a lot, yeah. Yeah. There was a uh, there was a line in the narration by Alex that kind of stuck out to me. Um, someday some kid will tell Ian, his brother, you're an idiot just like your brother who threw his life away, walked into the woods and died. I'm asking you as a last favor to put a better spin on it for him. Do you think there could be a better spin on his situation, if you follow what I'm saying? I think you definitely can. Um, you know, the, the idea that, that he's an idiot, it's that he's he's given up everything. You know, we live in this world where... Uh, you have to own a house. You have to own a car. Uh, you know, you have to, you have to have cable TV and a cell phone. You know, and all these types of things. Whereas he's giving up on that. He he went off into the woods. He just kind of went off to do his thing. He, uh, you know, bought some camping gear and said, "I'm just going to go out there and find myself." And for a lot of people, they're like, you know, what an idiot. If you're going to go out in the woods, you hire a, a guide. You know, where this for him had to be a very personal journey. He just had to go out there and do his thing. Uh, and stay true to himself, and I think that's something that a lot of people wouldn't be able to get a firm grasp on because it's so outside of what we think of the, uh, you know, the normal societal. I think I brought this up the last time, but uh, I think that he he followed his own code, but he also I think he followed some kind of basic social ritual in that you know it seemed like. The mother at one point said all the other kids when they graduated wanted hot like hot rods or sports cars and he just wanted to go on a trip, you know, and get it, you know, find his way to get to Alaska and do his thing. Mm -hmm. And I think like, you know, in some ways, you know, I, I think I was saying that like I would be less sympathetic for him if, like I said, if he was 35 and had two kids and was married and left, you know, left a good situation behind. But I think he... I think he respected his parents enough to say, okay, I'll wait until I'm an adult. I'm 18, you know, and I'll, I'll go ahead and wait till I graduate from high school. That way my parents' obligation to me, which was to raise me is done. And then I can make my own life because technically I'm an adult. It will be no, it will be no, I mean, I'm, I'm reading a lot into this, but it will be no, it won't bear on my parents. It'll be my decision. I'm yeah. an adult, you know? So I think he followed some kind of rituals and he did leave a legacy, so to speak, by sending the telescope, to his brother or was it was it to his brother or to a school no, in it was town? to a school in town yeah okay so he sent the telescope you know and he said okay this is what i want to maybe somebody can find their way through the stars or through the woods or whatever you know like he left a legacy he did what he had to do he left he shed his earthly possessions but he did it on his own terms but i think he didn't do it selfishly so i think that he realizes that there is always going to be sacrifice. Every decision you make might hurt somebody and he knew that he's going to have this little brother who's going to not understand and somebody's going to tell him someday exactly what that quote was. Your brother was an idiot who got lost in the woods. But, um, you know, I think he also left his journal saying, you know, read this if you want. Here's my reasons. Here's what I discovered. You know, that's why he left it at the end when he left the, the hospital room, because mm -hmm. even though his parents aren't going to accept it, maybe his brother will read it someday and understand like it was 
I think he was he he knew the consequences. There could have been worse consequences, but he gave his. Uh, I think he followed some kind of rules, you know, and and waited until it was appropriate for him to do it. If he if he disappeared when he was fifteen, that would have caused a whole lot more trouble for his parents than when yeah. he was eighteen and on his own. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think I think if I think the, the the clever thing is is if you do end up coming out of it saying, well, he was a bit of a bit of a tosser, really. Uh, <laughs> he took he did to his parents and. Uh, and everything else, then you've actually fallen into the mindset that the whole show is, 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 it's not sending up, but is questioning. And I think that's kind of funny in a way. I think the show works either way. If you go along the same route as Frank and, and start seeing exactly what Alex is doing and it's in, in a very, very pure, very spiritual mode of going beyond our, our needs and necessities and our loves of our own little, little existences. And you get that, that's, that's, that's super bloody good on you. But if you don't get it and you feel that he is, as I say, he is, he is what we might call in England a tosspot. And uh, he doesn't, he, you know, he obviously doesn't care for anyone. And he's being an idiot, like all the people in the town were thinking, you know, what, what a moron going there. He's going to die in the forest. And if you feel like that, then the show's also worked because that's exactly what it, it's talking about. Is That's what society thinks of people who do things which are so out there we can't understand. And we, we just we just catalogue them as being idiots, as uh, like, as I said in the earlier take with suicide is that people obviously a lot of the time mistake suicide. So, you know, what a load of what a load of wankers they go out there and they, uh, you know, they, they don't care about their family or anything where you think, well, how far do you have to be? How far down the line does your mindset have to be to how different to how it should be to a point where you don't care what anyone thinks or how anyone feels? You just need to get out. That's a terrible situation. And again, society does the same thing. It's just sort of like, oh, you know, what an idiot. Uh, and I think that's what the show is really saying in a way is, is look how we're all bound in these social conformities. And I think the, the use of family is very clever because that is something that we do just naturally assume is the most pure and perfect and sacred uh, example of spirituality is how we love each other as in family, as in blood. And it's sort of saying, well, maybe that's not true. Maybe there are times where you can be purer than, than family and have to need and, and genuinely need to go somewhere different. Than, than where you, you would expect in that pure family form and have to go beyond it. Mm -hmm. It's a very clever episode. I'm well amazed now, just talking now. I, I think I might have to watch it again. You were bringing up a point. I was hoping I could bridge this into another point about it, unless you guys have a certain direction you want to go. But I I wanted to bring up the point, and you, you brought this up about how society, majority of society would look at this person a certain way. And that brings up another character trait of Frank Black that I really admire is that he has ultimate respect for the victims slash the investigation. Yeah. Um, you know, in this, I hate to, I hate to tangent here, but I, I was watching a show the other day just randomly and it was, it was the show called bones. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and the problem is, is like they would go to a crime scene and then, uh, angel, cause that's, I don't know his name, David Boreanaz. <laughs> yeah. Angel would just, he would just start <laughs> cracking jokes, you know, like cracking jokes over the dead bodies, like at a crime scene. And I was thinking about what Lance said about his character, about how he zips up the jacket and he's very respectful of the victims. And what I liked about this episode, since there really isn't technically a victim and the, the investigation is, is not a serial killer, but the person, Alex himself, I like how he didn't like when the parents, like when uh, Catherine said, Hey, these parents want to talk to you. Do you want me to tell them to go away or whatever? And he's like, no, it's okay. I'll, I'll hear what they have to say. And you know, and when they bring up this task, like they're really worried, instead of him judging, saying, oh, that was stupid. Why did he do that? He said, I'm going to go to Alaska and check it out. 
Yeah. And then he read the journals and he, he went to find the kid and he respected the kid. You know, he yeah. didn't, he didn't put his own societal judgments on that character. And I thought that was really cool because he's trying to get into the mind of what would make this kid do that instead of prejudging the kid. Yeah. Right. Oh, instead that, of being like, I got to go find this dumbass who's going to get himself killed in the middle of the woods. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. was. And then in the end, which is, I've repeated many times is my favorite moment is he says, maybe there's something to what this kid did. So when they get the kid in the helicopter and the, or the plane, the plane takes off. Frank's like, I'm going to chill here for a little while and see what he's thinking. And he, yeah. he spends some of his own time in the woods reflecting on his life. And uh, that that comes from respect, not judgment. I think that's a really – and that's a character trait that he's carried over in small ways with other victims and stuff. And uh, I thought that was – that episode clearly points that out, and I really like that. I think before we go, I'd like to get, uh, if you guys wouldn't mind, your final thoughts of the episode. And I guess we'll start with you, Dirt. There's a quote in the show, and of course I don't have it in front of me this time. Um, but there's a quote in the show that says something about, um, you know, uh, uh, God moves us through uh, pain and contradictions. He brought us here to marvel. Um, there's something about that quote that's always kind of stuck with me in this idea that, um, you know, it, life is really this journey of understanding. Um, it's really about going out there and experiencing and doing. Um, and, and that's going to have much more of an impact on you than being told something, um, you know. Uh, they always say you learn best by example, and so there's really something about that. the The whole journey of life, you know, it's it's a journey. It's not a destination. That that really, I think, plays out very well in this episode. Um, final thoughts on the episode. Um, yeah. Well, I think that um, y- you know, I think it's a great from a from a production aspect. I was thinking that. Um, you know, it's one of the most best-produced episodes. I, I, I was watching it on my widescreen and wished it was on Blu-ray because I think it would benefit a lot. It's a lot of good uh, Canadian locations and uh, things like that, uh, which is pretty close to Alaska anyway, so it's not too far from the truth. You know, you're not trying to believe that uh, it's a it's a town in Phoenix when it's really a wilderness <laughs> in Vancouver. Uh, you know, it was, it was very close, close to the source material, so that's great. So from a production aspect, that's great. But uh, also, I think... Um, no matter how wacky season two gets or no matter how much someone likes one, two or three or all three in different ways, I think that uh, Luminary is a pretty, a pretty solid, uh, sh- pretty solid thesis on what Millennium's all about. Maybe not about the actual Millennium, but about what Frank Black is. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think rewatching this, like I said, removed from the program for a little while uh, made me kind of love that character all over again because I, just in one episode, both with the acting, the pro- the production, the writing, the possible symbolism, all that fun stuff, I think um, it made me realize what a great historical character that is. And uh, I can only, you know, I, I think that uh, Luminary is one of the episodes which I, since I initially forgot, I would show to somebody if I wanted them to get into the show. I have what, what can be said which hasn't already been said. Uh, Good point. It, it is a brilliant episode on virtually every level providing you give it a chance a couple of times i think uh i think as everyone has said as as a frank black episode it's uh it really highlights what makes the character uh so interesting and as 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 lance was saying earlier there's there's little sparks of of frank in there which you haven't really seen up to that point and maybe go a little too far arguably maybe not i don't know it depends on your point of view in season three but there's a sort of firmness as well as a softness. And as, and as, as, as just been said, I love the fact that Frank is a, 
a non-judgment character because you just don't get enough of those in television. The, you know, the main, the, the protagonist has to be informing the audience what to think. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it is very frustrating. I always love characters like that. So yeah, I mean, on every level, it's just a beauty. You can either watch it just for the sheer beauty, the sheer art of the production, the sheer art of television that's in that episode, which today is no less uh, poignant and perfectly done. Or you can go into those 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 layers, that layer, layer upon layer in that cake of 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 feasty millennium goodness that it's just it's just it's just it's just sumptuous isn't it it's a really sumptuous episode and i'm a little worried that i'm over talking it now and making it into something it's not but actually quite honestly i don't think i am um, no. yeah. the question of the journey and not the end is something which television doesn't do enough of again and as as, you, as you've just been pointing out that the journey is what it's all about it's what luminary is all about and that's something which television doesn't deal with much and it just makes the unique times it does even more interesting because you just don't get that. So yeah, um, Troisy, I, I, I'm 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 very happy we've talked about this because it's energized, it's re-energized me into that episode. I'm glad we had this luminary week because it made me go back and rewatch the episode and appreciate uh, how great that episode was. Because like I said, I glossed over it before, but I was watching it three times in the last week, and I see something new every time I watch it. So I, I want to thank you guys for you know coming back. And talking about yeah. the episode again. Coming back uh, to back to Frank Black. Yeah. Well, seriously, though, guys, I want to thank you for coming back. And uh, we actually talked about some other different stuff. So that was actually pretty cool. Yes. Yes. I'm glad we did that. I was just thinking about a rated R Lucy Butler. What would that be like? <laughs> that, that sounds like porn. <laughs> and thus, a winner. <laughs> yes, I was just thinking, all the fans are getting together. We need to do this rated R version, this deep. No, no, let's forget the deep. Let's just do the porn. Okay, guys, seriously, thank you for coming back. And we hope you guys enjoyed this discussion of the uh, brilliant episode Luminary. If you would like to join the Back to Frank Black campaign or have any questions or comments, go to backtofrankblack.com or contact us at info at backtofrankblack.com. Remember, we are all shepherds. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.